When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Violin Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Mogala. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you're new to us, we talk to violinists from around the world discussing practice tips, violin career advice, and other violin-related topics. And if you're new to us, please make sure to hit the subscribe button hit the bell notification bell so that way you get notified for when new episodes come out because it really helps us out to provide more amazing interviews and content for you. We aim to make the Violin Podcast a resource for violinists and I want to encourage you to check out the episode notes where you can find YouTube playlists to my personal YouTube channel on different violin practice tips and techniques. I find that it's been really helpful for my students and for people on YouTube to provide these practice tips. So I encourage you to take a look at those videos down below. You can click on the playlist. And if you're so inclined, please make sure to hit the subscribe button on the YouTube channel as well. When I started my personal YouTube channel around two and a half years ago, I wasn't aware of the amount of content that was needed for adult learners and adult beginners. I find that I read the comments section, there are a lot of adults trying to learn how to play the violin. And my guest today is the host of the Violin Class podcast. Her name is Julia Reddy, who's based in Montreal, Canada, and her goal is to create awareness and to help adult learners have tangible goals that they can reach on the violin as an adult beginner. Some of the content that is featured in this podcast episode is the conversation between pedagogy versus andragogy. And if you don't know what those terms mean, don't worry. This podcast is going to explain everything. And we're going to get right into the conversation with Julia Reddy. Here we go. Friends, I have Julia Reddy um, from the Violin Class Podcast. And, you know, this is actually really interesting because I had the privilege of going onto her podcast episode just a few weeks ago, and that was a fun time, but now she's sitting on the opposite side and it looks like based on our previous conversation, you know, right before the, before we started rolling, that this is your first time on the opposite side. How's it feel? Feels good. I'm ready, ready to be uh, answering questions instead of asking them. So yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, I actually want to dive into a little bit of what you're doing with the Violin Class podcast because it's a fun idea. I've always, um, um, it was always amazing to meet new podcasters in the same niche and in the violin world, especially. So, talk to us a little bit about yourself and how you kind of came up with this idea of starting the Violin Class podcast. Yeah, so I'm a violinist, I'm also a violin teacher. Uh, my studio right now is all adults, all online. So something a little bit different, I think, than most violin teachers. And the Violin Class podcast was a bit of a pandemic project that, you know, got its its wings after a little while. Um, and it, it was written and planned for, for my own students and with my own students in mind, just notes and thoughts from when I was teaching. So the podcast is basically just for anyone who's learning the violin as an adult, and I share practical tips for people that are learning, some things about the repertoire, the history, and generally just giving a teacher's perspective on all things related to violin, because 
I think that a lot of resources out there are geared towards people that are learning as kids, parents, you know, the Suzuki method. Um, and there's a little bit less towards the, you know, people that are serious hobbyists or that want to go into, you know, learning it as an adult. So that's, that's what I do with violin class. And um, for anyone who is interested in the difference between teaching kids and teaching adults, it's actually a, a completely different ballgame because, you know, for all of, for most of us, for, you know, violinists who are going to conservatory and then eventually we end up teaching, we end up learning pedagogy, right? But then there's also andragogy, which is the, you know, teaching the ability to teach um, adult beginners. Have you found that to be challenging? Have you, what, what, what was your experience like, or what is your experience like teaching adults, especially online? You know, you, the fact that you're continuing to teach them online is still really incredible. That's a really good question. You're right. There are, I think, a few really key differences. So, you know, I I was trained like everyone else, kind of Suzuki style. All of my education for teaching was towards kids, child psychology, all that stuff. Um, and I fell into the adult space completely by accident. Uh, just when I started teaching, I had a few adults contact me and I decided I really liked it and kind of it went on from there. Um, and after a while, I would say when my studio was about half kids, half adults, I, I decided to pivot because, um, as you said, it's really different, the the skill set, I think, teaching adults versus violin uh, to, to kids. Um, for kids, it's, it's a lot more tactile. You know, you're moving their bow, you're bending their fingers. And for adults, it's a lot more explanation based. I think they're a lot more curious as to why things work, how things work. So you need to be able to break things down more literally, I think. Um, but also what's nice is that you they know how to read. They know their fractions. They can tie their shoes. There's a lot of things that you don't have to explain quite as much. Um, the, the other difference, I think, is mindset-wise, where it's a little bit more challenging with adults is, I think, the confidence level and maybe, um, you know, just the general outset of starting something really hard at the very beginning is not something they've done in a while. Uh, so I think you have to be, you know, you just to take a little bit of a different approach because kids are, they're, you know, they're, they're open-minded. They're always ready to be learning new things because they're beginners at everything. Um, that said, I think the thing that I like the most about teaching adults is that they're really, really self-motivated. They're there because they want to be there. They're paying for their lessons. Um, they have experience in le learning other skills. They've thought about, you know, this decision. It's not a parent that's put them in there as an after-school activity. Uh, but generally, it's, it's really something that I've I've thoroughly enjoyed and that I'm happy to be doing every day. You know, something that I've noticed, especially in my adult beginners, and I'm definitely going to be sending this episode to all my adult beginners, because I think this episode is going to be really valuable. Maybe you can comment and comment on this, Julia, but I found that a lot of adult, like when I, when I teach adults, it's all about the experience for them. You know, it's, it's not so much about getting the right placement of the wrist or the bow hole, all that kind of comes in time, but I feel like something that I remember us talking about in on your episode of violin class podcast, all like very emotionally based. Like you have to kind of think of like the whole holistic approach, because as you said, probably adult beginners are, you know, well into their career. They're really successful and they, it's very difficult to start from zero when like in other areas of your life, cause you have like, you've already like matured and have advanced, like you have a family, you have a house, car, you know, all investments, like all that kind of adult stuff. 
So have you, have you found um, any challenges with teaching adults? Like, has there been a moment where like, wow, this is actually quite a unique situation, very different than what I would have um, approached like a, a beginner young student? Yeah, I think that it, it comes back to that. I think the confidence thing, you know, I think adults are really self-aware and self-conscious when you're learning the violin, you're actually putting yourself in like a very vulnerable and uncomfortable situation a lot of the times because you're making all these gross noises. Uh, things don't sound the way you want them to sound. And I think especially playing it for someone else, even if it's a teacher that is there for that, it can be really nerve wracking and it's difficult. Um, and I think that can play into people's confidence a, a lot. Whereas with kids, you know, some of them are actually really self-aware and they can be hard on themselves as well, but not quite as much in my opinion. So yeah, I think that being nice is really important to me as a teacher and um, trying to be really positive and, and showing them like, oh, look, this is something that you couldn't do six months ago or going back and listening to recordings of uh, the student playing before. Um, all that helps a little bit, but that's that's definitely, I think, the biggest challenge working with adult learners versus kids is, is more the mental game of it. Physical challenges as well, sometimes just with stiffer fingers, you have to go slower, but um, it's, it's more mental in my opinion. And I think what really helps adult learners is about the perspective. I think if you have, like, if you give them the perspective, like I remember when I was teaching one of my new adult students earlier this year, I'm like, okay, we're gonna start slow but this is where I anticipate us being at the end of the summer. And then we're going to look back and see how much progress we've made. And I remember I have one particular student in mind where he was like, Oh, Hey, I actually played this song like without even having to like warm up or practice or anything. And I think it's that, that motivation as you, as you continue to say it, you know, more than once that the, the motivating factor, especially for adults is definitely, definitely different. So I, I appreciate you do what you're doing with the violin class podcast and if for anyone who's interested in the violin class podcast i'm going to leave a link down below to um have these bite-sized episodes sometimes they're not sometimes they're like long lengthy interviews but sometimes they're like 17 minutes you know if you're driving to work or if you want to like get like a little bit of you know violin in your day i highly recommend that you know julie is a great communicator in that aspect as you said you're a teacher so i want to dive into um you teaching online how you started your online music studio. So it's very rare now that students or teachers have like full-time online studios. So describe how that started in the pandemic and how you're able to make it a lucrative business. Because from what I understand, you you move from a major city in Canada into a rural area and and then you know you're able to make it work. So I want you to kind of dive in on that and let our audience know about how you did that. Sure. Yeah. So, and, you know, first thing I'm going to say, it's always a work in progress. I don't have things figured out much more than the next person. This is just kind of how things have gone for me. Um, but I have put a lot of time and effort into trying to to make it work in this direction. So, um, you know, COVID for me, I think I got quite lucky with the way I had structured things, having already been working with adults pretty much exclusively before that. Um, and some of them already online, like if someone was on holiday, if I was on a holiday, and some of my students were actually already full-time online, although it was a small percentage of them. Um, I think I already had some of the the things in place to make the transition a lot easier. Uh, for instance, my husband was working 
also teaching, you know, full-time like me, but with kids, he's a classical guitarist and you know, kids are just, it's not the same experience as any music teacher knows that worked throughout the pandemic. Um, it's just really hard to teach a five-year-old violin over Zoom, even with the best of intentions, the parents right next to you. Um, whereas with the pandemic, I think we all got really used to learning things online. Um, people had no no other choice really and we all kind of figured like hey this is this is working we'll um, say this still I, I hate to interrupt you but i'm still not used to teaching online it's just like <laughs> there, it's like it's always a um a learning progress for me you know there's always something that i could do better or something that i could always like improve on but it's never perfect you know like in this two-dimensional space you know i joke with my colleagues that maybe we'll have violent lessons in the metaverse <laughs> it's like you know like the I don't know. It's just like, it's just going it to continue to blow my mind that we were able to do this for the last two years, two and a half years. Yeah. I mean, I think the reason it's still going on, at least for some people, is I do really believe it works. I, and I think you have to believe it works in order to teach it effectively. Um, but for adults, you know, it's, I'm not teaching people, although some of them take it very, very seriously and, and work really hard their let's say their career goals are not going to be at stake it's you know i'm not training pre-professional students that are trying to go into college i think it's less appropriate for that as well as it is for kids um, but for serious hobbyists it's a really great way to to learn um, and i think my the 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 day i kind of realized i was onto something is i had a student um who'd been working for a few years and we were just starting vibrato and it was over COVID. So he had no choice. I'd never taught vibrato online. And after, you know, a few months, I'm just like, it. she's playing, she's playing with vibrato. It's working. Like we, we did it. We figured it out. Um, so I think that on the teacher's perspective, it's a lot more explanation based. I, you know, cause you can't be playing with your student as much. They can play with you, but it's, it's there's not that sort of um, back and forth duo opportunity um as as you know if you are teaching online or if you're learning online um so there, you have to be really clear in how things work and be able being able to explain things uh yeah in in a clear way breaking things down so it's, it's a, a little bit of a different skill set but i don't know i love it i think it works really really well did teaching become natural to you just in general like i know from you know, in, in our episode from the violin class podcast, which by the way, I'll also leave a link down below in case you want to have that conversation, mm -hmm. if you want to hear that conversation. But um, then I know you're a performer. I mean, you probably haven't performed much like just like everybody during the COVID-19 pandemic, but oh, yeah, for do sure. you do, um, how, how did the whole teaching come about? Was it natural? Was it um, something that you like, you made a decision of like, okay, I'm going to teach, but like the active, like, like teaching adults was something by it that happened eventually. Right. But did you like make the active effort of like, I'm going to be a teacher or did it kind of like roll into your life? Because that's what happened to me. Like I remember talking to my, my violin teacher aunt, you know, who's, who's family to me. And <laughs> she, she, we always joke now because she was right. And I was wrong. And I was like, <laughs> no, I'm not going to be a teacher. I'm going to audition for orchestra. I'm going to get in. I'm going to have a stable job. I'm going to have a, you know, seed. I'm going to play Beethoven all my life. I'm going to love it. And he, she goes, uh-huh. Yeah. All right. Okay. Talk to me in like five years. <laughs> and then um, as it turns out, I turned out to be a full-time teacher. So it's, it's kind of a kind of come full circle, but anyways, I digress. Like, so did teacher being a, uh, being a teacher come naturally to you? 
That's yeah, I think that's such a, a good question because I think we all end up teaching at some point, you know, but whether we want to or not. Um, the story of how I got into teaching and starting my own studio is very intertwined with the story of how I got injured when I was studying college. So I'll share a little bit of that to to give uh, background. So um, yeah, when I was in university, I think my second year, I you know started having some pain in my left arm. And I had all these commitments, so I kept on pushing, tried to take a bit more breaks, and lo and behold, uh, a few months into that, I got a pretty serious playing injury in my ulnar nerve where I had to pretty much take about a year off of playing. So in that time, you know, if you've ever been an injured musician or just an injured anything, um, it, it sucks. It's hard. It's When you're in school, you're there to practice, and, and you have all these goals and you've worked really hard to do things and you have to give up a lot of things when you're um, in recovery. So that experience taught me, I want to say I got three main things out of it. The first one was I had to go back to the very foundations of how to hold an instrument without pain, um, posture, just awareness and and just educating myself to all of the mechanics of how the body works and and the violin, Um, pretty much just relearning everything from scratch. The second thing that I got uh, from that as well is not to put all my eggs in one basket. Uh, You know, in the music world, when we're professional musicians, we generally work a lot of different jobs. We wear a lot of hats. Uh, And I went into music and violin thinking I was going to go into orchestra like a lot of violinists do, I think, at 18. Um, I was at a in, in an orchestral training program and, you know, Figuring out early on that I was more injury prone, I decided it was probably not going to be the best path for me to to pursue orchestra full time. I I felt like it was a risky move, and it's it's just not something I was comfortable doing. Um, I was going to ask, like, um, did the injury happen like in the like where in your university study? But did the injury happen? Was that like towards the beginning, middle? And... Yeah, towards the beginning. I was. Beginning. I think okay. I I had the first year was fine. It was. I want to say early second year until about mid third year. And it was like when I was back that third year, beginning of the semester, I was trying to like play Seth check, like line one at 60. And like my, you know, my, I had to relearn every little motion. That was going to be my next question. Like, where did you at when coming out of the injury, did you feel like you were the same player when you were before? Not at all. I think that it, you know, there's a lot of, you know, difficulty that came with it, but I learned so much about how, how to play better. Um, you know, like just realigning my hand frame and all that stuff. Uh, it, I had more stamina as well afterwards, but on the other hand, just being more injury prone, I, I know that it's something that I'll always have to be dealing with. You know, I can't just pick up and play six hours and, you know, ever again, probably. Um, and, and by the way, we don't recommend practicing six hours a no. day or six <laughs> hours straight on the violent podcast. I am against that. But yeah, I think same. I think something you've, you, you, you made so many clear points that I've, I also have colleagues who have gotten some really in, um, interesting and also devastating news when they got a, um, like a nerve injury because it, you know, when you, when you get injured in sport, it's a broken bone or strained muscle or you pulled a muscle right with violin playing or even kind of um, like instrumental playing in the strings department, I would say that it, it, the, the micro aspect of the injury is, is small, 
But my gosh, it's such a huge thing because you're not just dealing with big body parts. You're dealing with tiny little nerves. And sometimes those nerves, um, I'm not a doctor, of course, and that's full disclosure, right? But you, they're very difficult to repair. And I know I have a colleague who had a, um, had a nerve injury near his funny bone, and he was definitely not the same violinist after, after, the, um, after the surgery. Um, this actually leads us to a very interesting part of the podcast in terms of injury prevention tips and techniques that you have practiced yourself or something that you teach. Could you enlighten us or could you talk about some of the things that's worked for you, for anyone who's struggling with any kind of um, tension or like weird kinds of pain in their body? Like I know for me, sometimes I get like tiredness in my neck and my shoulders. So if you could share with the audience, like what you do, that'll be great. Yeah, I have two tips for that, really, and none of them are very, like, just easy fixes. The first one is to get help with with it. You know, I, I had to find, um, go through a lot of different professionals before I found someone that really understood, first of all, the, you know, the issues that musicians deal with. And also on the violin side, I was really lucky that my teacher was supportive in my injury. Like, he kind of stood by me and waited for me to to recover before we got back into things and then you know took his time with the you know he was really really vital in the re-education process so you know having a good team of people to help you is very important the second one is taking breaks which is I guess an easy thing to do um and it's what you hear everyone say but it's it's really the most important thing you know when you're getting back into playing after an injury um you need to take it slow. I actually almost injured myself again. Like when I was pretty much better, I started getting back into things um, just too quickly because I was all excited and I just wanted to learn a new etude. And um, I ended up having, you know, to delay my return, we can say by another month or two, just because I was a little impatient. Yeah. <laughs> but it's something. A lot yeah. Of it's, it's, it's a, it's an interesting topic. Maybe it's a little heavy, but I think it's worth noting. I think something that I've, I've written down here that has applied to me and something that I'm noticing in your conversation that, you know, you got the support from many different people. So it, the recovery process, if you do get injured is not just about the physical, but it's all about the emotional and spiritual and mental aspect of it. Because back in um, back in university and college, I had a professor that said, "If you can't play well, uh, you can't, yeah, you can't play well if you don't feel well." Essentially, I like that a lot. you know, you can't play well if you don't feel well. If you're if you're struggling, you know, in at home, if you have a noisy roommate, you know, how are you supposed to, you know? And most college students do like they have a noisy roommate, oh, yeah. or you know, and they don't have a good good space for them to be successful in their practice. And, um, you know, it's, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a father now. So like, I'm, I'm trying to create different, um, yes spaces for my child, you know? And I think to create a yes space for your practice and for your success, I think is really important. And I think having a, a team, which is something that you really emphasize, having a team of people behind you to really support you through this journey. And, you know, for some people who are amateur violinists, they may not even get to that kind of extent of injury. They might not even play that kind of level of repertoire. But for the people and for the students who are listening, I think it's really important to note that it's okay to take breaks. I think we oftentimes, and maybe that's something that you can comment on also, Julia, that's oftentimes we, we connect our playing to our personality and to our identity. 
and it's very difficult to separate one from the two. Do you have any, um, do you have any experiences in your life where you're, where you had like, I don't know, I don't want to say crisis, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but this, like, this, maybe this evaluation of your music career where you're like, Hmm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm attaching my playing too much to my identity. Yeah, for sure. And I think to answer that, I'll also circle back to I think your original question, which I didn't get to is how I got into teaching. And that's, I think the the best thing that came out of this injury was, was really um, discovering my passion. So I had always taught, always taught on the side, it was always my summer job. Um, from high school and on pretty much, I think I started te- teaching at like 14. Um, but when I was injured, I had a year off of school. I was still taking classes, but not doing anything that I was there to do, like no chamber music, no orchestra. And I got my first teaching job. And, um, you know, it was just a little local music school. And um, But I had a lot of kids, you know, pretty full days. And I took it really seriously. Like I would, all the effort that I was get, not getting to put into practicing, I decided to put into preparing my lessons, learning about pedagogy, doing research, um, all that stuff. And I think that was really, you know, a fork in the road for me, just first of all, deciding that, you know, I, I wasn't comfortable putting all of my income, future income related to my playing. It's something that I want to do and of course make money from, but, um, not, not all, <laughs> not all the way. Cause it's, it's, it's too risky for, for me personally. Um, and I, I discovered that I really, really, really loved teaching. I think it's just as rewarding for me just to see if you, you know, you, you take one direction, doesn't work, you pivot, you, you, you explain things in a way and then it clicks with your student and you just see how good it makes them feel to be able to be playing things that they didn't know that they could be playing. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but that, that's, I, I would say how I, how I got into teaching and how, um, I think my career trajectory changed really significantly because of the injury. So I would say that for you, this injury was kind of like a blessing in disguise because Mm -hmm. what you circling back to what you said earlier about putting all your eggs in one basket, I think as musicians, not just classical, by the way, but just any kind of musician um, for you to put like all your eggs in one basket, like, there, I, th- I feel like there's a time and place in your life for you to do that. Like, I f- like you definitely don't want to be doing that <laughs> if you're like, I don't know, if you're starting a family or you're like you're so busy. Like there are, there are moments in your life where you can actually dedicate the energy and time to do all this. But diversifying, you know, like for you, for instance, you're, you know, you're performed, you're teaching, you're doing this podcast. So that actually is also a great transition to the whole business side of things because you you know you're essentially running your own business that's something that we've talked about in the previous podcast episode um with David Taylor which if you haven't really listened to that highly recommend it he's a classical music entrepreneur um based in the UK but i like talking about entrepreneurship especially with classical music because this is not a, a new idea i feel like this the the medium in which we um, present the music has changed with social media, the internet, et cetera. So I want you to touch base on how you are able to diversify yourself in your business in music. Yeah, I, I agree. It's such a irrelevant topic, I'd say, especially with COVID that um, a lot of the institutions that musicians have been able to rely on 
have just not given the same stability that it, it used to be giving. Um, and there's also just less, you know, less jobs available, more competition for those jobs. So I think it's really important as a musician to to diversify and to look at different ways of, of you know, earning your living and um, expressing yourself. On my end, I've always really had a desire to start things and to work for myself. Uh, and it's ironic that I thought I was going to go into orchestra because in orchestra, you really do have very little autonomy on what you, you know, what your schedule looks like. I really enjoy the flexibility and the challenge of going into something new. And for me, it's it's kind of a creative endeavor in itself. So I, I started a lot of things, you know, coming out of school and school, music camps, studio, online stuff concert series, podcasts, um, well, one podcast, but you know, some of them were successful. Some of them weren't, all of them were fun though. All of them were music related. And I think it's allowed me to, you know, come, come into terms with what I want to do with music, which is of course, perform and play and practice and, and all of that stuff. But for me, it's, it's more about trying to make the violin and more, more broadly, classical music more accessible to people um you know connecting the the people that are interested in violin and and classical music with kind of an entry point where they can ask questions and be curious and and learn more about the space you know, these are the people that come to our concerts that are buying our records and it's in the interest of everyone i think in classical music to make the world more available and easier to understand and more accessible to just like the common the common person <laughs> the non-classical musician um yeah so that's that's what I try to do I think through the podcast through teaching and through through playing as well man well said I I like how you said you you like to work for yourself because I'm very much on the same boat that I like to work my for myself too there's a part of me that likes to have the stability of like working at a music institution but there's also a part of me i'm like well no screw that i want to <laughs> i want to just like do my own thing and hopefully one day you know you and i get a chance to experience that you know that that level of success and you know it it eventually happens um for for working entrepreneurs or solo entre uh, solopreneurs i like to call myself and i'm sure you like to maybe consider yourself the same um some fun questions that i like to ask on the on the violin podcast um favorite composer Mahler. oh Ooh, ravel. which ravel <laughs> yeah symphony two for Mahler, ravel like everything except <laughs> sorry but yeah okay Mahler <laughs> two resurrection I'll, I'll i'll give you that that's legendary um i'm gonna edit this out this long pause um <laughs> thank goodness it's not live um favorite solo violinist hillary Hahn. she's just the best <laughs> favorite strings you like to play on i've been on a big dominance kick the last few years so you know i like i think they're pretty solid overall and i like the price and yeah i've been playing on dominance for a while do you play with a shoulder rest or you don't i do cool. okay what shoulder rest do you use the, yeah, just a classic coon. I've tried everything and I've always gone back to that. Great. And also I'll leave links to Julia's violin set down in the description below. You could, you know, these are, those are affiliate links. And of course, that's one way that you can support the podcast. You know, it's not extra, you know, you don't pay extra for you to get those products, but it helps, you know, fund the podcast and get amazing guests like Julia. 
So, um, Julia, I, there's, you know, I like to ask this one last question to my guests and what, what do you, where do you see, you know, the violin profession going in the future? You know, like right now we're podcasting, of course, but maybe in 10 years, podcasting is going to be obsolete. Maybe it'll <laughs> just be, it'll just be like an archive that we have to continue to dust off. So, um, how, I mean, and you're in Canada, of course. So I want you to comment about, you know, maybe this could be like a city union for, you know, arts education and violin education in Canada also. But um, what, are, what are some of your thoughts on the future of you know, the violin, violin education in your country, around the world? Where do you see it going? That's such a good question. I have to think about that a bit. Um, I'm I'm really not sure where it's going just because things are are changing and evolving, which I think is is really important that they are. You know, that that classical music and violin isn't, you know, something that's gonna be, you know, just always in the tradition and become almost like museum studies. Um, where I hope it's gonna go, what I can comment on is is more more towards like smaller indie projects. I think Montreal is like a really, really cool city for that. There's a lot of young people doing really cool things with their skills and um, their classical music education, branching out outside of classical music and starting ensembles, um, you know, playing more smaller things, smaller venues. I yeah, and and I think also just with the internet going more directly to listeners and not having to use the traditional avenues through orchestra and stuff and being able to connect with people through that um but yeah i mean i'm i'm gonna be watching just like the rest of you as to where where things are headed in the future yeah i hope to have you on the podcast again and hopefully in person my goal is to have every single person that i've interviewed up until this point in person to do another interview that's my goal where i can travel to you know, wherever they are around the world or to their hometown and just like have a conversation in person. Because even though I love this two-dimensional, you know, format that we have right now, there's nothing like the energy that you get in person, you know? So um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is Julia Reddy from the Violin Class Podcast. And of course, as I mentioned before, you can, you know, all, um, I'm going to do that one more time. I'm sorry. Ladies and gentlemen, that is Julia Reddy from the Violin Class Podcast. And you can actually look and click and subscribe to all the links that are in the description below. And if you want to learn more about Julia, um, Julia, where can people find you online besides a podcast? Yes. Well, first of all, the Violin Class Podcast has a website, violinclass.co. And you can also reach me directly by email at violinclasspod at gmail.com. Great. Thanks, Julia. I really appreciate the conversation and I'll talk to you real soon. Great. Thank you so much, Eric. It was a pleasure.